Today on Foodstuffs. We talk to an urban farmer who wants to make kale and cash. The challenges of operating a for-profit business in a largely non-profit space. The average teenager would easily spend whatever, I don't know how much kids spend on denim these days, but like 100 bucks, 200 bucks, whatever, which in my mind would be absurd. I'm like, why would you right. do that? Yeah. In their mind, it's just, there's this culture, there's this like, uh, in their case, it's brand or quality. And I think that culture exists in various, in various spheres. Um, and we have to bring it to food. This is Rand from Fresh City Farms, and you're listening to Foodstuffs. Good? Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker and I'm Brian Goman. So Jess, what's going on? You had a pretty big weekend as I take it. I was just uh, had the occasion to volunteer at the Fair Food Nation Summit hosted by CFCC or Community Food Centers Canada. Um, this is a group that I've been volunteering with, you know, for the last six months or so. Right, yeah. If you live in Toronto, you are probably or potentially familiar with somewhere called The Stop. Um, this is sort of a new take on food banks. This is, yeah, they're just trying to basically emphasize fresh fruit and vegetables rather than the sort of typical canned goods dried goods of the past right yeah and yeah actually if you listen to the show you may remember from episode 15 my chat with omar jahangir about the homegrown dinner project he was raising money on behalf of the stop if that means anything right they're everywhere yeah. in toronto for sure and they're doing so much great stuff around food and actually they're relevant to the discussion that i had today and i want to up. talk more the by the way about uh this summit that you're at. We'll get to that a little bit later. But okay. um, but like I say, relevant to the discussion I'm going to have today, um, the stop is, like I say, in that sort of community gardening space. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm urban agriculture, community gardening. Exactly. In that and that's really, urban agriculture is really what got me into um, food and really thinking about food. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, mm -hmm. It was sort of a time in my life when I was thinking about what was important to me and what I wanted to do with my life and how I could sort of marry these two things and bring them a little bit closer together. Um, mm -hmm. And really it came to, to food and that led me to meet with and interview uh, Rand Goel, who is the uh, founder of Fresh City Farms. In one sense, they're beside people like the stop in community gardens growing food for the city. But unlike the stop, they're not, a non-for-profit, they are a for-profit. So they are uh, sort of like a community sort of, uh, shared agriculture program, you know, the CSA mm -hmm. programs. Yes. Most people think yes. about like the basket program where um, the tra in traditionally you would like pledge a farmer um, for the season and then you share in the harvest as it comes. There's some risk right. to that, obviously, because, you know, uh, farming is not like... If the crop goes like, off or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, I I mean, you're sort of jogging my mind right now. When I hear the word CSA, I think about, yeah, it's just a certain model that is accepted. It's true. You receive whatever produce it is for the week. It's sort of an educational tool. It's almost like an awareness tool, right? Where right. this this is exactly what's in season this week, and this is what your farmer wants you to have. Um, but 
that word awareness has sort of changed for me lately where is it meaningful because it's not practical to my life if I don't want turnip this week <laughs> and you've given me turnip am I right. going to eat it exactly am I actually going to eat it so it, now that you're saying um this for-profit model this is also ringing bells of the mobile food market that we had the chat about a few years ago anyway I feel like we should probably get into this discussion unless there's anything else you want us to know before we get into it I think we should just stop and let uh, Rand pick it up at this point. Yeah, exactly. I've already made references to how many episodes that we've already done this year. So That's right. we should probably get into it and then we can come back and we can do a big jam. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. I like jam. Okay. All right. So here we have Brian speaking with Rand Goel, founder and CEO of Fresh City Farms. At the core of, of, of um, when I first started Fresh City, you know, the, the dream was to have a completely dis- decentralized farm, meaning that people would farm in backyards and front yards, and we would um, aggregate all the produce under one brand and, and ship it out the way we do now. Um, but after the first year, that kind of died because of the logistical nightmare that proved to be. Uh, but the vestige of that was our member farmer program, which you might remember. Mm-hmm. So we still, to this day, have 15 to 20 people every season who farm small plots of land. Um, and um, the idea is it's, it's an incubation program. We, we give them a bit of greenhouse space. We give them a bit of, uh, of uh, storage space. In return, they give us half a day of labor every week. Um, that model um, is, you know, you would not see anything like it in a traditional for-profit business. They're right. like, in our case, it kind of makes sense. It makes sense because we're, we're trying to promote urban farming. That's what we've tied our brand to. Uh, it actually makes sense in terms of having a lot of people on site, which helps reduce theft, helps us with, you know, watering the plants, the, the, the crops on a Sunday when our farm manager is not there. So one of our member farmers is there. Um, but all these things, it, it, it is when people sort of come to you as a member farmer and they say, I want this and I want that, or this is an issue, that's an issue. And we say, no, we're a business. This is what we've been able to provide you. Right. Um, but there's no grants here to say, hey, here's a, a full-time uh, farmer who's going to teach you how to farm. Yeah. Um, so I think along the, along the way, it's been, you know, we're, we're trying to sort of, uh, it's a fine line that we're trying to step. And I think we've gotten it right as the years have gone by. So, for example, we used to allow volunteers, a lot of volunteers on the farm and on the packing as well, up until I think three years ago. Um, but then we realized, you know, there was always a quid pro quo that, you know, you get produce and things like that. But the, we realized, you know, we're not, we're, we're a for-profit company and we need to be able to say, hey, Brian, we need you to move quicker, um, which you can't say to a volunteer. Yeah. Uh, and Brian, why are you half an hour late? Um, and frankly, like in terms of labor laws, we realized, you know what, this, even though we feel like, you know, we're not taking advantage of somebody, like people are coming to us and, you know, they're getting something and it's a great environment and they're learning and that stuff. Yeah. We realized, you know, that's not really at the core if we're a for-profit business. Uh, we have to pay people um, and pay everybody. Um, and so basically now we're in a weird position where we get, especially this time of year, dozens of emails. I love urban farming. I'm very passionate about the environment and making the food system better. Uh, can I come volunteer? And we, we just have to say no. So the only times we allow it now is if it's through college credit or some, through some kind of um, academic program um, where there's a learning component and it's, it's structured. Uh, but we're in a weird position now of having to say no to volunteers. Mm-hmm. And, and I say weird because um, we want to be able to facilitate positive experiences with farming. 
Um, and that's, I think, one thing we'll have to work a way to figure out how to, how to do that without it being, hey, come and harvest. Right. Um, and we've, we've tried a few things. Uh, some have worked better than others. But, but I think that's one of our primary challenges is figuring out what that, that line is between us being a for-profit, triple bottom line business and us being, not being a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. This generation, the younger generation in general, not just millennials, but I think uh, people a little older, you know, Gen Y, Gen X people as well, um, there is sort of an anti-establishment feeling, mm -hmm. right? Uh, again, there is a slightly anti-capitalistic feeling. You're trying to satisfy your bottom line, but still not let that get in the way of your morals and values and the reasons you started the business to begin with. Exactly. Do you think as a generation, we need to sort of shift or change the way we look at making money and capitalism in general? Yes, I think we do. Um, I think we're in this sort of transition period where, you know, if you asked our parents, you know, the average person from our parents, my parents' generation, you know, born in the 50s, uh, the idea was business is business, charity is charity, and then government government. So the idea is business can do whatever it wanted because there's a government there looking out for you, regulating whatever needs to be regulated, um, and business just needed to, to operate as, as, it, as it did. Uh, and then for, you know, quote-unquote poor people, there was charities who would take care of them, um, et cetera. I, I think as we've sort of matured as a society, um, and frankly, as we've realized that in our complex world, government's not going to solve all, all of our problems or a lot of our problems. Um, we need to find a different paradigm for it. And there is, I think, a, a big tension, and it's, we see it day in, day out on our end, uh, between being a capitalistic enterprise at the end of the day um, and all these generating all these public goods, uh, as it were. Um, and I'll give you a small example. So we source in a very conscious manner, meaning, you know, organic, uh, fair trade, local, all that kind of stuff. Um, at a certain level, and for most people, that all the work we put into sourcing and the, frankly, the expense that we, we incur um, doesn't show up in terms of value for them. And, and one of the reasons is they, there's so much greenwashing out there. So words like natural and green and sustainable, they don't actually mean anything legally um, as, a, as an adjective for a given product. Um, that we're at a disadvantage. So if, if Loblaws you know, goes out and creates this beautiful, beautifully packaged uh, whatever salad uh, that looks like it was you know, homemade and that it's like green and it says natural and healthy and stuff like that, and it might be anything but because of what they include in the salad dressing or where it comes from, et cetera. Um, we're at a disadvantage. So at some level, this is just a values decision. It's not a commercial decision. So yes, there are the diehards who, you know, they check the labels and, you know, okay, mm -hmm. it's organic, okay, it's uh, no GMOs, that's great. Um, but a lot of consumers don't have either that knowledge base or that commitment that other people would. So at some level, I think you have to decide your red lines um, as a company and go with them. Um, and it's interesting because this is from the, you know, the business ethics this often comes up is, you know, what are red lines? So do we, as a business, do we just do whatever we can get away with legally? Um, and for, the, for a lot of businesses, the answer is yes. But even for those businesses, there's 
always some kind of norm, some kind of value, some kind of moral that they're not willing to go beyond, regardless of the commercial repercussions. Um, for most businesses, not that fleshed out, meaning that, so for example, the CEO of, um, I don't know what, Toyota, they might be able to get away with using child labor in Burma for some car part they use. Um, but the average CEO uh, has certain red lines. They say, you know what, even if we can get a five-year-old to put the, these little screws together in this box that we need, we're not going to do it, regardless of brand. Um, so I think to a certain extent, you, as a CEO, as a leader, uh, you have to kind of decide, okay, what are your values going to be? Um, and you can't really be putting your finger up to the wind to figure out if it's going to pay off in the marketplace or not. See, that's interesting to me because my cynical mind thinks about the CEO of a big company like that and uh, feels like they're being advised on the potential repercussions that if it came out that we use the five-year-old in, in Burma, that it would cause this impact on the bottom line and that's driving their decision, not necessarily morals. But obviously, again, I, this is the black and white thinking, like, liking to see people as good or evil. Right. And we see a, a CEO of a big company, big Fortune 5 company or a publicly traded company where they're certainly for profit and certainly that's driving a lot of decisions and certainly there are some decisions that they make that negatively in fact. Uh, people or the environment or whatever. So we see them as 100% evil. Right. Right? Where obviously that can't be true, or we like to think that that can't, that can't be true. Right? Yeah. Can't be true. I hope, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, it is. I think it's funny because you sort of have entered this gray space, which shouldn't be gray at all. Why should there be any problem with you being a for-profit business in this market? That was something I remember when we spoke years ago, right when you guys were getting started, that was something that you were dealing with, with then, too. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. now, uh, as I mentioned, when I look at the way your business has operated and as how it's evolved over the years, um, and even if you go to your website and look at your FAQs, I can see that you're very consumer-centric. You are very much meeting consumers where they are. You ask for this, you're going to get it. You want different things in your box? No problem. Right. You, you're you telling us that you want prepackaged meals? No problem. We'll do that. Right. Can you talk through a little bit about that decision making and what led you to um, take a more uh, commercial, traditional approach to how you uh, how you service your customers? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question because there's been a huge evolution from when we first, first started. Um, I think we were always more flexible than a, a hardcore CSA, but nonetheless, we've gone from prepayment to paying by week. We've gone from you can customize to you can customize whatever you want. Uh, we've gone from uh, you know having uh, just produce to having fresh meals that you just have to heat and eat, which are certainly not like the romanticized version of what you think of you know cooked from scratch. You know, look at what's in the box and come up with a recipe and cook from scratch. So. I think a big part of it has to do with what we realized where where customers are at. And I say that in the sense of people um, have a whole host of reasons why they shop the way they do. And a lot of them have to just do with inertia and access. Meaning that if you have that grocery store close to your house and you happen to pass by it um, and that's just the way you've gotten to food and that's the most convenient way, that's what you're going to be doing. Um, and in order to shift people from that, um, especially if you're charging a bit of a premium, which we are, not 
given our product, but given that it is organic and local, and most people do not eat shop organic and local, and so it, it does it does represent a premium for them. Um, if you're trying to shift people that way and get them to to, to trust you to pick their produce, um, you really have to provide a very compelling value proposition. Um, and that's really what it came down to. If we want to be able to shift people from the mainstream way of shopping food, uh, which we think is not good for them or the planet or for farmers or for local communities, um, we'll need to really come much closer to where they're at and offer them a compelling reason to switch from Loblaws, to switch from Sobeys, to, to, to come to Fresh City. Um, and that's ultimately the crux of it. Um, and if you kind of look inward, you know, the, so the, it's funny, I, I, I remember this moment very distinctly. It was like early 2011, uh, where we were still setting up the farm, and I was like, you know what, this is going to be great. Urban farmed organic produce, this is going to sell like hotcakes. You know, we're going to, you know, I, I thought, I, I remember this, I had this number in my head, I'm like, we'll sell 100 shares, um, CSA shares, within like a month. And lo and behold, it took us, I think, almost the the first year or at least the first six months to get to 100 to sell 100 shares sold and after a lot of work a lot of work um and a lot of retention issues because people would sign up and you know i think we offered eight week slots and people would just do eight weeks and then they'd stop um and you kind of realize there's uh, especially with food but i think with anything um uh, it's really hard to shift people's the way people shop, especially if they're paying a bit more for it, mm-hmm. um, and I go back always. And you know, part of you, I think, a lot of people in the in the in the business get bitter um, because it's it's tough with food because it looks the same a lot of times. So it's it's really what went in it, like what was the production process to get to this tomato, and also now for like restaurants, what how do you process it? Um, and the problem is the consumer doesn't always reward those chefs, those grocers, those anybody involved in food who's doing it the, the, the right way because um, they don't see it they don't, they don't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people get bitter at that because they're like, you know, I'm working so hard to source from this farm, yeah. the chef, and then they're like, oh, yeah, but this guy's going to come in here and complain that, you know, I'm charging an extra couple bucks for the entree. Um, so people get really pissed off, and understandably so. And, and, and that's what I think at some level as, a, as a social entrepreneurs you have to be attuned to and realize that there's people have their lives, especially these days. It's pretty hectic. Um, they're tr- trying to make decisions as it goes. I, I, and I think so that that's the, the the world that we confront. And you can get bitter at it, um, and that's fine as long as you don't do it for more than an evening. Uh, but you have to come back and say, okay, how do we change this? How do we right. make this uh, mainstream? Well, and I think that is uh, a question that's been asked for a long time: is how do we get people to value food more especially in north america where we know that i think the numbers are still around seven or eight to ten percent of your budget is spent on food in the home where again in europe we're 15 20 percent and other countries were higher than that um but getting people to say i'm going to spend 50 percent more than what I'm spending now on food. And, you know, again, those, we uh, a couple weeks ago we were talking uh, about, again, the immediacy of what do you see of that impact, the immediacy of that impact. So, okay, fine. I, instead of 69 cents a pound, I spent 99 cents a pound for this banana. Now what? Yeah, exactly. What's the difference, right? And, and that's where I think creating culture around food is so important. 
because you know it's not these things, these decisions. If they're if they're made discreetly, in the fashion that you just described, the decision is always going to go to the lower cost. Um, but if they're looked at as a part of a culture of of, of quality of uh, like in the in the same way that you know the average teenager would easily spend whatever I don't know how much kids spend on denim these days, but like a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, whatever. Which in my mind would be absurd. I'm like, why would you right. do that? Yeah. In their mind, it's just there's just culture. There's just like. Uh, in their case, it's brand or quality, and I think that culture exists in various in various spheres, um, and we have to bring it to food. Um, but when we look at it on a, on, a, on a decision by decision basis, and we just break it down to, yeah, what's this banana going to do for me? <laughs> what have you done for me lately, banana? Mm-hmm. Um, then we're in trouble. And, and I think that's where you know when you look at countries with strong food cultures like Japan, like Italy, uh, like France. Um, there's a hook there at least. And it, it's not always, and not to say that those countries always necessarily eat healthier or, uh, or, or treat their farmers any better. Uh, in some cases, yes, some cases, no. But there's a hook there to say, hey, you're putting this in your mouth. You really care about your cuisine. Do you know where this is coming from? And I think we're, we're creating that hook. Um, not We Fresh City, but as part of the, the good food movement of uh, an appreciation for quality, an appreciation for the the craftsmanship of, of farming and and food production. I think this is one of those big challenges that lays ahead. What else do you identify as sort of the biggest challenges that face that you face as an industry sort of moving forward? And what you you described, I think, as the good food mm-hmm. movement, right? I think at the end of the day, for me, there's like a couple of things that stand out. Um, one is that whatever starts selling organic, local, whatever it is, um, is often co-opted by bigger retailers uh, and bigger players in general. Um, and that could be, that's fine if it's done authentically. So it was interesting. The other day I went to, I said A&W, fast yeah. food chain, yeah. fast food chain. So I went to A&W, um, there's one, one close to my house. And they've, if you haven't seen, they've really changed their, a lot yeah, of their branding. Antibiotic free right. and something. They picked a couple of adjectives. And, and they, they stick with it. Yeah. And, you know, in their case, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know, you know how deep that commitment runs. Um, it does seem like at least some of the words they're using, they can't really get around. Like if they're saying it's hormone free, it has to be hormone free. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, I think I was very impressed with, you go there, there's a lot of the packaging was reusable, whether it's the cups, whether it's the, the fry holder. Uh, so I went in there and I said, you know what, this is, if I were to create a fast food joint, I probably wouldn't do this. But get the, guess what? This is a big step forward from, or at least a step forward from McDonald's. Um, so insofar as that happening, I feel okay about it because at least we're moving forward. I think in a lot of cases, the co-option is inauthentic and is, doesn't really mean anything. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, the most absurd example is these water bottle companies who, you know, say this is an eco bottle or this eco is... Eco-lid. Yeah, eco-lid. The lid is, is smaller. We use less pr- plastic. Why? Because we care about the environment. Exactly. Not because it's cheaper to produce and this is the most expensive part of this product. Not that. So, th- so that's the part that kind of breaks your heart in the sense of yeah. like, this is, this is ridiculous, right? And, and it happens in various forms in food, right? So it's, 
the uh, appeal to a romanticized agricultural past by having like a photo of grandpa or something mm -hmm. on the on the bottle but the actual stuff is made completely mainstream with whatever ingredients they can get their hands on and you know full of preservatives sugar all that stuff so that's like it's the one thing i see as a big issue is that even as companies like us um actors like us ma make progress uh, these other schmucks co-opted and then actually <laughs> dilute what we're doing because then people will come back to us and say, hey, why are you charging so much? Yeah. You know, we're, we're actually doing it the right way. So I think that's the one issue. And the other issue I think is a, a, an emphasis, and this is on the part of government, this is on the part of the media, on good news stories. Uh, and we've been the beneficiary of this. We are, we're often in the news because of what we do, um, which is great. Um, but really, the story here is not us. The story here is the broader food system and how it does what it does. And I mean that in the sense of, like, there, I, I, there's not a lot of critical um, government policy regulations or journalism, I feel, uh, about the prevailing food system. And that's what I think would move the needle more than saying, well, look at this great company that, you know, services the equivalent of a quarter of an average Loblaw store mm -hmm. um, rather than saying, hey, look what this Loblaw store is doing. You know, look at the stuff they're putting out. Um, look at the way they're building these hyper big supermarkets and what that means for traffic and carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and, and look what the, look at the stuff that they're they're um, they're 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 um, emphasizing that people should buy, whether mm -hmm. it's like how much shelf they give crap food or what level they put it at and, and that kind of thing. So I think that that's the two things I would I'd really, for me, uh, are, should be the focus rather than the good news stories, which are, which are fine, but we're still a very, 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 very small part of the overall story um, and the co-option element because um, you see that over and over again. Like governments, for example, would come up, you know, the Wynn government put together a $10 million local food fund a few years ago uh, and we were the beneficiary of that, so they helped us pay half of the costs of the fridge or something along those lines. And that was great. But in my mind, it would have been greater um, would be to create policy that actually de-incentivizes things like having open-air refrigerators in supermarkets or uh, charges tax, higher tax to crap food like pop and things like that, and that then uses that revenue to support good food production. So rather than the kind of the easy political wins, which is like, oh, yeah, we'll give $10 million to the good food sector mm -hmm. and I'll keep them quiet for a bit, um, focus on the underlying issues driving bad food production and bad food distribution. Interesting. And, I mean, we've talked about little things like this, like sugar tax that some countries have chosen to implement. And there is some change in legislation happening. The Canada's Food Guide, we've talked about a bunch and how that's changing. And that's a big, big shift um, uh, here in Canada. What are you most excited about now? I think that probably the thing that gives me the most hope is uh, less government action because I haven't seen a lot of um, movement on that front. And I think it's going to take an immediate crisis like diabetes is a crisis, obesity is a crisis, but it's not immediate enough, I think, for politicians to react to. Um, the thing that gives me the most hope is I think people are, uh, because of the long supply chains um, for all products these days, um, and because of, I think, people's, most people's jobs no longer um, see the fruits of their labor, as it were, because they're like a small cog in a bigger, much bigger process. I think there is a, a renewed appreciation uh, for authentic product. So things that they can say, that's the guy 
that grew my pea shoots, and that's the guy who I buy my eggs from. Um, I do think there is a, and it's based in nostalgia to a certain extent, but I think some of it's based on it. It's becoming such a complicated world, this idea that, you know, I've seen the farm that grows my lettuce uh, has a certain beauty to it. Um, and I think that I'm hoping that's kind of the precursor to building a, a food culture um, where, where food is, um, is seen as a, uh, not just a means to an end of like just putting calories in your body, but an end in and of itself. And that's, you know, pretty nebulous thing to be positive about. But I think ultimately that's what will change. Because if you see, again, the, the countries that spend more of their GDP on, on food are cultures that have a strong food culture. That frankly, we have restaurants of theirs in our country because that food culture is so strong and so renowned. Do you feel um, that food culture growing here and building and gaining momentum here in Toronto? I think so. I definitely think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, but this is something that, you know, in other countries takes decades and centuries. So it's not something that from today to tomorrow. But I do see in terms of, you know, the kind of restaurants that people aspire to go to, um, the the growth in farmer's market, the growth, even with all my criticism, of local product and organic product in the bigger supermarkets. Um, I do see that. I do see that happening. Terrific. Thanks so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. No problem. And that was Brian in conversation with Ren Goel, founder and CEO of Fresh City Farms on site in Toronto. Isn't that interesting that there's something about the quality of this space? Like, I mean, hearing that you're having this conversation, planting the seed, and then actually attending this conference this weekend, um, it's so interesting how people expect this level of generosity um, from people that are willing to do this work. And obviously we have many, many examples um, from this podcast of all the ways people have extended themselves, perhaps overextended themselves um, yeah. in the work that they do for this for this cause, um, which is amazing. But if we're talking about sustainability, first and foremost, right. you want to know that there is a model that is long-term. Um, so when we're talking about awareness, um, such as the CSA before we would talked uh, before we threw to the uh, interview that you did. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about longevity. We need to know that these models exist. Awareness is a part of that. And so doing these CSAs, getting people kind of like back in touch with, yeah, slow food, the farmers that grow in their area, 100 kilometers, all of these pieces. This is very, very vital. Mm-hmm. But that might just be this moment in time, ideally, in my version of the future, this is a moment in time where it's a re-education, it's getting away from the fast food, it's getting back onto the slow food, and um, and then eventually it's not going to be weird for a farmer to want to make money despite, because that's right. the difference, right? They're, they're in Why the city. Why would that be weird? And yet somehow <laughs> it's so funny. it is sort of funny. It- but I understand it because like uh, talking about the stop before, like again, people go to community gardens and they're used to seeing people like the stop uh, or people like food share mm-hmm. in the garden, growing mm-hmm. food, educating people, uh, strengthening that relationship with food and doing it in a way that's completely all inclusive and access for everyone. And it's and important. benevolent. It's absolutely important. Yes. Yeah. But absolutely. also <laughs> to, right beside that space is a group that is trying to go grow 
good food that is local, that is ethically grown, um, mm-hmm. that addresses a lot of the things that we are saying as a populace, that this is important, that we want things to change. We want things to change in our food system. So it makes sense that you, again, that they would be a for-profit business. And like you say, if it's something is going to be sustainable, um, you know, in, in this case, that has a lot to do with money because even if something is a program that has a lot of uh, funding behind it, whether it's uh, private or government or whatever, um, mm-hmm. as we've seen, programs end. Things change. Yeah. Right? That's the All thing. it takes is, is for somebody to say, uh, we're not applying that subsidy anymore or the funding for this program is gone. And right. that's it. The whole idea is dead. So we need exactly. some of these these organizations to be looking at it from um, a for-profit or capitalistic or a sort of social enterprise kind of uh, way. But with social enterprise, there's always that these challenges where you are doing it for good reasons um, and you do want to help people out. But in some cases, you can't. You can't mm-hmm. anymore because you have to respect the fact that, you know, people are expecting certain things from you there. If you said you're going to deliver at this time, then you're going to. So that mm-hmm. you need people to be uh, efficient at their job. You need them to show up. And, you know, when that's always the case, whether it's uh, with volunteers or anybody that you're not paying, um, some of those people are 100 percent all in. You never need to question. And some of those people mm-hmm. are. Uh, a little unreliable or maybe not as efficient as as they could be. This is actually relevant to what I was just saying with regard to uh, longevity. This is the uh, moment in time because when a volunteer calls up, obviously there's lots of good intention there. But in a situation where we're talking about farming in the city, how many farmers are in the city that wanted to move to the city to farm, if you know what I mean. So right. we're meeting people where they're at as far as education around this and yeah, the skills that they already have set in. So there is a need for all of those um, programs that exist where there is, you know, the the trade-off of I'm teaching you how to farm in exchange for your labor and the product that comes of it. Um, but eventually... You know, there's the situation like Fresh City where this is labor and this is like work for you. Um, Mm -hmm. And we want to hire people to do this work and to do it well. It seems so crazy to me that you have to justify efficiency and and proving a good model. So, you know, you can think of Ran as like businessman if you want, where he's just like, I'm trying to take all this money to the bank. But in reality, he's someone on the forefront just saying, let's take this seriously. Let's stop treating this as weird and let's start treating this as something that we need to prioritize, put value behind, get support for, adapt to the market, which is why, you know, they have the like take home meals or whatever. If that's where, if that's where people are, you know, if that's what people need in order to access and support local, then I don't see a problem with that. Um, But there's the education piece that's coming in with the healthy food uh, movement. And then there's also the uptake and creating this long-term space so that this can continue and that this, again, is is normal. Right. And that is another episode of Foodstuffs. Thanks this week go to Randwell, Abra Snyder, and everyone at 
Crush City Farms. Thank you very much. Thanks so much uh, to Ken Stauer and Eric Betlam from CIUT. Once again, we are not with you this week. Nonetheless, we love you very much. And we shall return. <laughs> Don't forget about us. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Foodstuffs Life or on Facebook by searching Foodstuffs. You can head straight to the website, foodstuffs.life. You can also download our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other app where you get your podcast. While you're there, you can always rate us. That information is very helpful for us. What do you like? What do you not like? Let us know. Be generous. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I'm Brian Goldman. And I'm Jessica Walker. We will see you next week. give back to the good food movement <laughs> we're including ourselves now i don't know why not why not <laughs>